Welcome to NTD Evening News. Our top story tonight, the ceasefire between Israel and Hamas is about to end. More hostages are released, including one American, but fighting between the two sides could resume soon. Jason Perry brings us the latest. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer calling out anti-Israel protesters, pointing out their alleged double standard. This as the government now investigates Harvard and other top colleges. Arian Pazdar has key updates on the rise in anti-Semitism. Outside the U.S. Capitol today, honoring thousands of brave Chinese citizens who risked it all to take a stand for freedom. The white paper protest movement showing that the CCP's grip on the people of China may be waning. Melina Weiskup reports. President Biden taking aim at Congresswoman Lauren Boebert. What's prompting the fresh wave of political attacks and what a new Gallup poll is suggesting about Biden's 2024 campaign. Iris Tao at the White House. The Supreme Court may change a long-standing law. A man charged with securities fraud challenging government agencies' power to penalize. He argues that power should be left in the hands of federal courts. Arlene Richards breaks it down. As the national debt continues its upward spiral, is the U.S. headed for an economic disaster? Congress tackles the debt crisis as the House Budget Committee proposes a solution. A U.S. military aircraft crashes into the sea off of Japan, killing at least one crew member on board. Search and rescue efforts are underway. This is NTD Evening News. Live from our NTD Global Headquarters in New York City, here is Tiffany Meyer. Good evening and thank you for joining us tonight. The temporary ceasefire between Israel and Hamas terrorists saw more hostages released today. But is this the quiet before the storm as it's scheduled to end in hours? NTD's Jason Perry has the latest. Hamas terrorists released more hostages, including an American, on day six of the temporary ceasefire with Israel. The hostages were seen riding in Red Cross vehicles as they crossed the border from Gaza to Egypt. But one person who won't be in this group or any future group of released hostages is 10-month-old baby boy Kafir Bibas. That's according to a statement by Hamas on Wednesday. Here's video from October 7th when Hamas terrorists kidnapped him, his four-year-old brother Ariel, and their mother Shiri. Hamas has now said that all three of them are dead, claiming that they were killed in an Israeli strike. And their father, who was also kidnapped, remains in Hamas captivity. Israel Defense Forces are currently assessing the claims and have notified their family members about Hamas's statement. Just the day before the news was reported, people rallied in Tel Aviv, still hoping for their release. The four of them have been kept in Hamas captivity for already in, in Gaza for over 53 days. 53 days in which we, are, we don't know where they are being held, what is their condition. Are they being fed enough? Who is taking care of them? Are they together? Who is holding them? Who is, do they have showers? Who, who makes them, uh, who hugs them when they're crying? 
But even after the children are released from captivity, Israeli doctors said the children are facing various medical challenges, including psychosocial challenges. Most of them are expected to be released in the coming days to their places of accommodation, except one child who requires a longer medical treatment followed by rehabilitation. This father, whose nine-year-old daughter was recently released from Hamas captivity, explained on CNN what it's been like reuniting with his daughter. Just like I imagined it, you know, running together. Um, I squeezed, I probably squeezed too hard. Shocking, disturbing part of the meeting was um, I had to put my ear on her lips, like this close, and say, what did you say? And she said she thought her father had been kidnapped, and she thought she had been in captivity for a whole year. Her father later had to break the news to her that her stepmother had been killed. Meanwhile, in the southern Gaza Strip, a Palestinian aid group was able to take children's minds off the destruction of war as kids danced and sang songs. I am so happy with the games and I am so happy with this truce, that there is no war and hopefully the truce continues. The ceasefire between Israel and Hamas is scheduled to end Wednesday night. Qatar, who has been mediating the talks, said they hope to bring positive news by the end of the day. Jason Perry, NTD News. A five-alarm fire that must be extinguished. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer warning the nation of a dangerous rise in anti-Semitism. This says lawmakers are now investigating possible anti-Semitism at America's top universities. NTD's Arian Postar has the story. I feel compelled to speak because I'm the highest-ranking Jewish elected official in America. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer on Wednesday addressing the rise in anti-Semitism in the U.S. In the two weeks after the attacks by Hamas, the Anti-Defamation League reports an almost 400% increase in anti-Semitic incidents over the same period last year. Schumer says he sees a stark contrast in the ways Jewish and non-Jewish people react to that increase. To us, the Jewish people, the rise of anti-Semitism is a crisis a five-alarm fire that must be extinguished. He says that's because many American Jews have family members who suffered persecution firsthand, and they're now worried that history is repeating itself. The majority leader also said anti-Israel protesters often argue that Israel displaced 700,000 Palestinians. But he said those same people never talk about the 600,000 Jews who were displaced from Arab countries. Schumer concluded with three appeals to the American people. Learn the history of the Jewish people, reject anti-Semitic double standards, and understand why Jews defend Israel. At the same time, lawmakers in the House are investigating Harvard, the MIT, and the University of Pennsylvania. That's over allegations of anti-Semitism on their campuses. Because of that, the presidents of those three schools will testify before a House committee at a congressional hearing next week. At the same time, the Department of Education is opening an investigation into Harvard. That's to find out whether Harvard failed to respond to alleged harassment of students based on their national origin. However, the office made clear that it has so far found no evidence of wrongdoing. Ariane Pastar, NTD News. 
In New York City, authorities thwarted an alleged assassination plot against a Sikh activist. The suspect is an Indian national reportedly acting on the directive of an Indian government employee. He's accused of paying a hitman who turned out to be an undercover federal agent. Court documents say that the suspect was involved in international weapons and drug trafficking. He was later jailed in the Czech Republic. The Indian government is investigating. Taking a stand against the Chinese Communist Party is not an easy feat for citizens inside China. Nevertheless, thousands have done so. And today, these voices are being reinforced outside the U.S. Capitol. NTD's Melina Weiskup reports from Capitol Hill. In an event right outside of the U.S. Capitol this evening, a group of Chinese dissidents and human rights activists are trying to remind the world that the Chinese Communist Party's grip on its people may not be as strong as it seems. And that's clear not only from the people who are commemorating the white paper movement today, but also with the white paper movement itself. So just to take you back to exactly how this all started, well, around this time last year, there were tens of thousands of Chinese people who took to the streets holding up pieces of blank white paper in protest of China's zero COVID policy, but not only in protest of that policy, also calling for an end to the Chinese Communist Party and the dictatorship. What that would take to risk your life in a regime like that, to speak on behalf of truth and protest tyranny, I think that should give us all who are lucky enough to live in the free world some courage to do whatever we can uh, to protect the freedoms we have. Year after year, more and more Chinese people are standing up to demand their basic human rights. Year after year, the change is happening. Took it upon himself to read off a list of names of people who were actually involved in the white paper protest movement who are still being detained in China today. I also got a chance to catch up with lawmakers about the commemoration of this white paper freedom movement. And they said this is something that should be encouraged because it is a beacon of hope. So it's actually a little glimmer of hope that that still uh that China's uh, stronghold on its people is not as strong as they think it is. And encourage them to continue with that for the cause of freedom around the world is to acknowledge their sacrifice and, uh, and applaud their sacrifice. And I think it's important to continue to do that. And this has to happen organically within the country. And this comes at a time when there's a new undiagnosed pneumonia breaking out in China and spreading, causing hospitalizations to spike. Now, this is raising concern among lawmakers here in Washington, D.C. Many of those whom I spoke to said that they're very concerned about the issue of transparency in the data coming out from China, saying that they don't even know how serious this pneumonia is because China uh, recently covered up the COVID-19 pandemic, which caused millions of deaths around the world. Reporting from Capitol Hill, Melina Weisscup, NTD News. President Biden taking direct aim at Congresswoman Lauren Boebert. He's seeking to frame 2024 as a choice between him and MAGA Republicans. Though polling continues to show warning signs for his re-election campaign. NTD's Iris Tao has more from the White House. Traveling to Congresswoman Lauren Boebert's district in Colorado on Wednesday, President Biden touting his clean energy investments there while taking aim at Republicans. The historic investments we're celebrating today is in Congressman Boebert's district. She's one of the leaders of this extreme mega movement. She, along with every single Republican colleague, voted against the law. 
Biden's there to promote his so-called Inflation Reduction Act, which he says is the largest ever U.S. investment in fighting climate change. And as foils in his re-election campaign, the president has been targeting Republican lawmakers who have been trying to block his legislative agenda. The Speaker, Donald Trump, and the MAGA Republicans here in Congress committed to protecting their outrageous tax cuts. And Republicans are firing back. Congressman Boebert says in the statement that families in her district are, quote, being crushed by so-called Bidenomics, adding that Biden's Inflation Reduction Act has, quote, mandated Green New Deal policies that cost taxpayers hundreds of billions of dollars. And the latest crossfire here comes amid warning signs for Biden's re-election campaign. A new Gallup poll release on Tuesday shows that just 32 percent of Americans approve of Biden's handling of the economy. And that's despite President Biden saying, and inflation is down. We have more work to do. And the economy is not the only area where the two sides are clashing. House Republicans are eyeing to hold an official vote in coming weeks to authorize their impeachment inquiry into President Biden, which might give them more legal power to demand information. The White House, meanwhile, says the inquiry is lacking constitutional legitimacy. Back to you. The Supreme Court is considering how much authority federal government agencies have. The Biden administration has appealed a lower court decision in favor of hedge fund manager and conservative radio jockey George Jarkizi. The SEC fined Jarkizi and barred him from the industry after finding he committed securities fraud. The lower court then ruled that Jarkizi should have been allowed a jury trial. We turn now to our legal correspondent Arlene Richards to sort out the arguments. Arlene, in layman's terms, what happened here? Well, to state it simply, the SEC is a government agency, and for years it has been initiating claims against individuals through its in-house tribunal system rather than going to an outside court. Now, Congress gave them that power under the Securities and Exchange Act. They used the same system in this case, which fined and barred George Jarkazy for securities fraud. Now, he appealed to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. Sir Casey's attorney argued that the SEC's powers should be restricted by the Seventh Amendment of the Constitution, which gives individuals the right to a jury trial. At oral argument today, he said that basic securities fraud is a typically common law claim, and therefore this client should have gotten a jury trial in a federal court. So this case is about what is the extent of those Seventh Amendment restrictions in securities fraud cases where the SEC is seeking penalties. In this case, the Fifth Circuit also ruled that the SEC's actions violated Articles 1 and 2 of the Constitution. So the court effectively invalidated three aspects of the SEC's operations. Hmm. So presumably the SEC followed the same proceedings that it usually does to handle suspected fraud. How is this case or the proceedings different from other cases? Well, the proceeding itself was not different, but I think the issues raised on appeal were different. And of course, the Fifth Circuit's decision was unexpected. Now, the court decided that Congress violated the Seventh Amendment when it gave the SEC the power to initiate administrative proceedings and seek penalties, and that by giving them this power, the SEC has unrestricted authority to choose cases and seek remedies without going to a federal court. And the Fifth Circuit said fraud actions like this case should be handled under federal common law and not by independent agency action. 
It seems like the Fifth Circuit unilaterally changed a law or proceeding that has always been used by the SEC. What was the Biden administration's response to the ruling? Well, the Biden administration is, of course, very concerned about this ruling. Notably, the SEC's five-member commission is appointed by the president with the consent of the Senate. So this ruling undercuts the administration's authority. Their response to this decision is that the SEC has a long-standing practice of filing cases under the Securities and Exchange Act. It uses an administrative proceeding that sends these cases to an administrative law judge, and that judge reviews evidence, holds hearings, and hears arguments. If the defendant doesn't agree with the decision, he has the right to appeal to a court of appeals, which is what happened here. So in other words, he got due process. They argue that the Fifth Circuit made significant errors in its ruling because Congress does, in fact, have the power to appoint individual matters to agencies, even if they involve common law issues. They also argue that Congress's power to delegate matters to agencies doesn't depend on whether or not the case is uniquely suited for agency review. Now, what are some of the concerns expressed by the Supreme Court justices today during oral argument? Well, I think the biggest concern here is what effect this change would ultimately have. And one of the justices noted that this involves asking the court to change the law. And she expressed concern that it would require changing the powers of all federal agencies. Jarchese's attorney said this could be fixed by giving the people a choice of which tribunal can review the case. But I think many of the justices were concerned that the federal courts would now be burdened with an increase of cases. And actually, some experts have said this decision is particularly troublesome for federal banking regulators who solely rely upon in-house tribunals. Those regulators don't have the option to file claims in federal courts. But the court today, Tiffany, seems to be considering the suggestion that individuals should have an option to choose the tribunal. Arlene Richards, thank you so much. Thank you, Tiffany. Is America heading toward a debt disaster? What is Congress doing about the nation's increasing indebtedness? The House discusses the problem. One lawmaker saying the damage will be catastrophic and irreparable. NTD's Virginia Gibson has more. This is our generation's world war. It's a problem of historic proportions. The most important and incredible threat to the republic as we know it. Continued inaction will prove disastrous. America's national debt, it continues to surge nonstop as Congress continues borrowing to spend. The end result could be economic calamity for future generations. The House Budget Committee discussed the urgency of the issue Wednesday. The only people that can fix this is the United States Congress. And to think that the United States Congress is going to be willing to do this is laughable. Lawmaker Steve Womack says Congress has done nothing to address this issue. He says the big problem is that no politician wants to cut the biggest sources of spending, entitlement programs. In particular, Social Security, Health Care, Income Security, and Medicare. Cutting these things will be unpopular with voters, and politicians need votes to stay in power. The debt is so high, interest payments themselves take up 16% of spending. Interest is crowding out um, all of our discretionary uh, programs. Um, interest is certainly crowding out defense. My colleague uh, on, on that subcommittee um, and I both see that every single day, and it's certainly happening on the non-defense side. One possible ray of hope. 
a fiscal commission. We need an outside group of experts to help us understand what the absolute truth is. The commission would analyze the economic situation and then provide recommendations to Congress. A fiscal commission may not be the magic potion, as the chairman had said, and it may fail. It may. But we cannot stop trying. Lawmaker Bill Huizenga believes this commission would be the most practical and immediate way Congress can break the status quo. It's unclear how Congress would react to recommendations from such a commission. Virginia Gibson, NTD News. Tragedy strikes off Japan's coast. A U.S. military aircraft crashed today into the sea near Japan. At least one crew member was killed. Two other people were rescued from the water, but their conditions remain unclear. Japan's Coast Guard said it found what appeared to be wreckage from the military aircraft, a tilt rotor V-22 Osprey. It crashed just before 3 p.m. local time, about two miles off the coast in western Japan. Six people were on board the plane. Search and rescue operations are still underway. Local witnesses said the aircraft's left engine appeared to be on fire as it approached an airport for an emergency landing. Coming up, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis faces off against California Governor Gavin Newsom in a debate that's more than just a clash of states. Is, the pre is this a preview of a future presidential battle? And podcast host Mike Leon says he expects more money to pour into Nikki Haley's campaign. Hear more about what he has to say about new developments on the campaign trail after the break. Welcome back to Arizona Republican election officials are charged with felonies. The state AG accused Cochise County election supervisors Tom Crosby and Peggy Judd of conspiring to delay the counting of the county's votes. He says that prevented Arizona Secretary of State from finishing the statewide count. The indictment out today says the county certified its election results three days late and only following a court ordered meeting. Arizona Secretary of State called for an investigation into Crosby and Judd shortly after that. In what's expected to be an entertaining political showdown this Thursday night, Florida Governor and 2024 Republican presidential candidate Ron DeSantis is setting the stage for a high-stakes debate with his California counterpart Gavin Newsom. Touted as not just a clash of governing philosophies, but also a prelude to a potential presidential rivalry, if not in 2024, then perhaps in the future. While Newsom consistently downplays 2024 presidential ambitions, his rising national profile fuels speculation about his future intentions. Meanwhile, DeSantis, amid a challenging national campaign and a dipping approval rating in Florida, likely sees this as more than a debate, but also a strategic opportunity to position himself against a formidable Democratic figure who's possibly eyeing the White House. It's a chance for both leaders to bolster their standings and rally their bases. For DeSantis, it's a crucial moment to rejuvenate his campaign and make a national impression. For Newsom, it's an opportunity to defend Biden's record and confront Republican policy objectives. 
With a narrower field of candidates in the GOP primary, we are seeing the remaining candidates picking up major endorsements. A political advocacy group backed by the Koch brothers recently threw their support behind Nikki Haley. And today, J.P. Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon also said that Haley is the candidate who has the best chance of unseating GOP frontrunner Donald Trump. What do we make of this? Joining us to discuss is Mike Leon, host of Can We Please Talk podcast. Mike Leon, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Yeah, Tiffany, thank you so much for having me again. Now, big donors, including the billionaire Koch brothers, are backing Nikki Haley for presidents. That's the latest push to beat Trump. How do you read this, especially given the polls? Yeah, you know, uh, it's so funny that now you're starting to see folks starting to weigh in. Uh, we saw Iowa Governor uh, Reynolds uh, back Ron DeSantis. Now we're seeing uh, uh, the donations that are coming in from the Koch brothers for Nikki Haley. I, I read it as similar to last time I was on. I was mentioning about how the debate performances went. And I think right now people are starting to see Nikki Haley's ascension after these debates. Uh, I mentioned to you, Tiffany, and I'm going to take a victory lap about Tim Scott would probably be dropping. And sure enough, he drops. And I think what's happening right now is you're starting to see, even before we get to January and the Iowa uh, primary, you're starting to see a consolidation. And I think the money is starting to move towards Nikki Haley because we saw a poll in South Carolina trending upwards in her direction. We've seen uh, her shoot up in morning console polls, which registered Republicans as about 4,000 or so in those polls. And she's moving up continually. Now, the problem is, is that they're all chasing the person that's 40, 50 points ahead of them. But there's legal troubles ahead for the former president. We know that there's going to be trial dates around key campaign dates. Super Tuesday, for example, the former president could be in court. And I think right now what you're seeing is the donors are starting to realize we have to put our money behind somebody that we think can not only beat Trump in the GOP primary, but could also beat President Biden in the general. Nikki Haley's campaign has done that in terms of speaking to moderates and independents and Latinos and bringing in that coalition of voters. And I think right now the ear of those donors, uh, she has caught on because of the messaging, because of the way she's performed in these debates. Expanding on that point, what is Nikki Haley doing right that the donors are backing her? Well, I think the biggest thing has been the humanizing word. She has used this a bunch of different times when speaking about issues that Republicans have been getting hammered on in the midterm, specifically around abortion, women's reproductive rights. She mentioned in the first debate with Martha McCallum from Fox News. She mentioned it recently in the other debate. I think the other big thing that I was telling somebody this, a Republican strategist this, is right now the U.S. is involved in two wars. And there's a third potentially looming with respect to whatever China does with Taiwan. We have Russia, Ukraine. We have what's happening with Israel and Hamas, even though there's a pause right now in the fighting. And, and I think foreign policy-wise, Nikki Haley is way above some of these other candidates, specifically Vivek Ramaswamy. We've seen the back and forth him had about Vladimir Putin and the way they would uh, talk to President Xi of China. So I think that's what's happening right now. Foreign policy affects the U.S. economy. It affects things at home here, even though voters tend to rank it as lower issues. The billionaire donors know that President Trump ran on no new wars and being able to navigate the foreign policy waters. And I think Nikki Haley is carrying that torch. She was a former ambassador to the UN. And right now, she has put out the best plan in terms of messaging around what she would do for our allies involved in these wars and putting out the fires that could potentially come if China were to invade Taiwan. That's why I think the money is shifting towards her.
Now, there is going to be a debate between Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and California Governor Gavin Newsom tomorrow. Sean Hannity wants this to be a red versus blue state debate. But what about the governors? What are we likely to see from them? You know, I, I go back and forth with this. And, you know, obviously I worked at Fox News for people that don't know. I know Sean Hannity personally. So I'm interested to see what this debate looks like. There's no audience for it. And I think right now for Ron DeSantis, uh, I, I don't have an issue with him trying this, even though it's before next week's debate that'll be in Alabama on the fourth one. I think both governors are just trying to placate to a national audience that they'll have, you know, the ability to talk about some of the successes that they have had. And I think for Fox is trying to pigeonhole it of, you know, the Republicans versus the Democrats. I think for DeSantis, he needs to really champion some of the things that he's done in Florida, expanding upon teacher pay, the $20 billion surplus in the economy. And I think for Gavin Newsom, he's been quoted in several different publications talking about Democrats are not doing well on the messaging standpoint. He's been getting hammered for the homelessness issue that's happening in California for people that are leaving the state because of the state income taxes, uh, big uh, blue dots like San Francisco, where there is not, not so much a housing crisis, but the market is very expensive for renters, for home buyers, And so people are leaving the state. And, and they're coming to DeSantis' state in Florida. So I think you'll see some of that back and forth between the two of them. But I think for Governor DeSantis, this is really an opportunity to go out there and champion some of the things that he has done well in Florida that other Republican voters across other states can capitalize on that will translate to him. How should we read Newsom's moves here? He has said he won't run against President Biden, but is he angling for the presidency in 2028? There's no other way that he wouldn't be. I mean, I think he was, you know, a year ago, both of these guys were as seen as the next future of these parties. If you remember in November of last year, Governor DeSantis won by such a wide margin here in Florida that the Republican Party really wanted to capitalize on how we could take that uh, entire you know, votes that he won by and kind of take that across other states. Gavin Newsom, the same thing. He was so popular before the recall in the state. And then over the last 12 months, we've seen both of their political stars kind of come down a little bit more, where now you're seeing, you know, DeSantis has a challenger in Nikki Haley, which we just talked about. And Newsom has mentioned he doesn't want to go up in, uh, against President Biden. But I think this is a perfect audition for him because he's mentioned he's watched a lot of Fox News. He's gone on Fox News. Sean Hannity's a friend of his. This is an area where he can kind of message to some of those folks that are a little bit more moderate in the Republican base that watch Fox News and message to them why he would be a good national candidate and some of the things that he's done in California that they could potentially get on board with from a national electorate perspective. So I think he is uh, positioning himself pretty well for 28. But 12 months ago, everybody would have thought that this would be the presidential de uh, debate that we would see unfold in 2024 with these two stars. A lot to watch out here for sure. Mike Leon, thank you so much for your time. Tiffany, thank you as always. Coming up, UC Berkeley facing allegations of unchecked anti-Semitism. A new lawsuit now trying to compel the school to respond. And is Israel playing into the hands of Hamas under international pressure? The senior editor of Newsweek joins us to discuss the difficult situation for Israel. Stay tuned for more after the break here on NTD News. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. 
A U.S. military V-22 Osprey aircraft crashed off the coast of Japan. At least one crew member was killed. Search and rescue efforts are underway. The Supreme Court heard arguments about how much authority federal government agencies have. The case is about a fine and ban on hedge fund manager and conservative radio jockey George Sharkazy, who didn't get a jury trial. The extended ceasefire between Israel and Hamas is set to end early Thursday, but talks are underway to further extend it. An American-Israeli dual citizen is among the hostages released in the last batch. Lawmakers began investigating allegations of anti-Semitism at America's top universities, including Harvard and MIT. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer called anti-Semitism a five-alarm fire that must be extinguished. UC Berkeley and the UC system are accused of letting anti-Semitism go unchecked. Jewish advocacy organizations allege that student groups prohibit speakers who support a Jewish state. NTD's David Lamb speaks with the attorney who's suing the university. Ken Marcus, chairman of the Louis D. Brandeis Center and former assistant secretary of education for civil rights, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Your nonprofit organization is suing UC Berkeley and the UC system, claiming that it has long-standing unchecked anti-Semitism on campus. So how did this start? We take no pleasure in bringing the lawsuit. We would prefer that they simply comply with their legal requirements. This lawsuit is about the failure of the University of California to address anti-Semitism on its campus, certainly over the last year and a half starting with the decision by nine, nine student organizations to exclude Zionists from speaking uh, on any topic whatsoever before their uh, organization. And I understand that you receive many complaints from students. So what are the students saying? We're hearing from students around the country. Jewish students are afraid now because they are feeling such an immense amount of hate since the Hamas atrocities of October 7. Now think about that. In the wake of these atrocities in which uh, Jewish Israelis were tortured, uh, burned alive in some cases, raped, uh, murdered, uh, their uh, corpses in some cases desecrated. In the wake of that, a groundswell of support for the perpetrators. The Berkeley situation is in one sense typical or representative of what we're hearing all around the country, but it is also one of the worst. And some students don't feel protected on college campuses, including a Jewish student who was hit on the head during a rally. Can you um, tell us about this? Uh, the student who was hit on the head with a water bottle was at the University of California at Berkeley, the sexual survivors group. And think about this for a moment. We're talking about women who were brutally victimized once. And then they were told that they couldn't stay in a survivors group because as Jews, they support the state of Israel. So victimized a second time. And then third, the university that they were members of failed to take their uh, their uh, allegation seriously, meaning that they were victimized three times. That was at the University of uh, Vermont. It was also at the State University of New York at New Paltz. And uh, what are the demands that you're seeking from the UC? They need to establish policies and procedures that ensure that all of their students receive equal protection. That includes Jewish and non-Jewish students. And they need to spell out the rules in a way that is clear uh, and prevents the sort of problems they've had lately. Ken Marcus, chairman with the Louis D. Brandeis Center, thank you so much for your time. Thank you.
In a statement to NTD, UC Berkeley said the claims are inconsistent with the university's efforts to confront anti-Semitism, adding that, quote, student organizations have the First Amendment right to choose their speakers. Does the truce with Hamas play into the hands of the terrorists? What could Israel do in the face of negative press coverage? Joining us now to discuss, we have Josh Hammer, senior editor at large for Newsweek and host of The Josh Hammer Show. Josh Hammer, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Always a pleasure. Josh, it is now day six of the hostage prisoner swap between Israel and Hamas. Now, there has been a lot of international pressure for this truce, and we know that Israel has been prioritizing bringing hostages back. But given what we're seeing here with this extension, is Israel playing into Hamas's hands? The answer is yes. And it's a very difficult situation for Israel to be in. Certainly, I do not begrudge the extraordinarily difficult trade-offs that the Israeli government has to make right now. And look, I know personally, Tiffany, that if it were my loved ones who were, who were held by Hamas in those subterranean terror tunnels in Gaza, I would be begging the government, pleading with them, with every ounce of my being to do whatever it could take. However, Israel has to reestablish deterrence. After the Hamas Holocaust of October 7th, if Israel does not reestablish deterrence when it comes to Gaza, then it's free reign for Hezbollah up north, it's free reign for the Iranian proxy militias in the West Bank, it's free reign for Iran in general. This is the worst attack that Israel has faced in a half century, and if they do not obliterate Hamas, then it's unfortunately, I really do fear it could be the beginning of the end of Zionism, honestly. A lot at stake here, and Israel has vowed to complete its, quote, complete annihilation of Hamas after this truce is ended. But with each day that the extension continues, experts are noting that when that day does come, it'll play into the global narrative that Israel is in the wrong. What can Israel do in this situation? So unfortunately, Jew hatred is the world's oldest and currently most fashionable form of bigotry out there. So there is really not a whole lot that Israel, at the end of the day, can do to get public opinion on its side. Look, if you're the kind of person who looks at your screen and cannot immediately determine who is right and who is wrong here, then you are probably somewhat of a lost cause to begin with. The lesson for Israel is to just put on blinders and just tune out what everyone around the world is saying when it comes to this conflict. And by the way, that very much includes the Biden administration, which essentially since day one, but you know, really escalating in recent weeks, has been talking a lot in closed doors, trying to micromanage this conflict and essentially trying to get Israel to take a premature off-ramp that would be far short of what we just discussed, the complete and utter eradication of Hamas. So when it comes to the global PR war, you know, Israel can always try to do better, but at the end of the day, I fear that it is somewhat hopeless, and I hope that they ultimately choose to ignore that aspect of this fight. On that note, what about the information war that we are seeing playing out in terms of this hostage swap? What are some of the biggest lies we've seen? Well, the biggest, I mean, there are multiple big lies that have been out there. One is that this is an apples for apples trade when it comes to this swap. That obviously is the furthest thing possible from true. When, when you're talking about the 50, roughly 50 Israeli uh, Israelis thus far who have been exchanged for Palestinian Arab terrorists, these are innocent civilians who were taken hostage on October 7th in violation of every basic norm of morality and in violation of every single scruple of international law. 
and you can compare them to the Palestinian Arab terrorists who are being released. These are convicted criminals. You know, they have faced trial in in, in Israel Israel's criminal justice system, which does it have its flaws? Sure. I mean, every Western criminal justice system has its flaws. America's has its flaws as well. But this is a Western first world order criminal justice system that has convicted people who have been properly convicted of all sorts of horrible crimes. So it's not an apples for apples comparison. The second one is that you have this ridiculous exchange between Elon Levy, the Israeli government spokesman and interviewers on Sky News. And the interviewer basically tries to, to get Elon uh, Levy down and says, oh, does the fact that it's a three for one exchange mean that Israel somehow values Arab lives lesser than Jewish lives? I mean, what a complete moral inversion as to what this actually is. If Israel could trade one for one, of course they would do that. But that's not currently what it is. So there's a lot of misinformation out there. And what is your understanding of this almost Hamas terrorist sympathizers that we're seeing around the world? Well, Tiffany, I mean, I personally face them face to face. You know, a couple of weeks ago at the University of Michigan, I was there to deliver a talk for Yaf Young America's Foundation. My talk was shouted down within minutes of my opening my mouth. The University of Michigan unfortunately failed to uphold my right to free speech. And, you know, look, I think that the audience should look out for, for further action when it comes to that violation of my First Amendment right. But in general here, you've seen jihad sympathizers out in the open, marching on the streets, infiltrating the university faculty lounge, infiltrating everywhere. There's this video that went viral on social media a night or two ago of the Oakland, California City Council. And there, someone had the, had the temerity to insert language trying to condemn Hamas. How dare you? How dare you try to condemn a U.S.-EU recognized terrorist organization? And yet that very, very straightforward call to condemn a terrorist organization was met with just disgusting, disgusting hatred, antipathy, vile Jew hatred. So it's out there in the open. And unfortunately, for those of us who are sane and not insane, and for those of us who are fighting the forces of insanity, our only option is to fight it with everything we've got. Josh Hammer, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Coming up in the NFL, a miraculous return from an Achilles injury. NTD's Dave Martin joins us in the studio to discuss Aaron Rodgers' next steps when we come back. Welcome back. And now for your sports news, we're joined by NTD's Dave Martin. Dave, let's start in the NFL. Aaron Rodgers has now been cleared for practices just 11 weeks after he tore his Achilles. No other player has done it faster. How soon will he be starting to play, though? Well, that's the big question right now. It's still unclear. You know, he's cleared for practice drills, but he's not been cleared for contact. That'll actually be the final hurdle. Now, the Jets have a 21-day window where they can decide to activate him, you know, put him on the active roster. That expires four days before they play Washington on Christmas Eve, and that's a game he's actually targeted. Now, Rodgers has at least hinted that he maybe he'd prefer the team to be, quote, alive if he's going to play, you know, currently they barely are. I mean, they're four and seven. Uh, there's still three games to go before they play Washington. They really can only afford to you know, lose one more time if they're going to stay alive. And boy, with the way their offense is going, that's going to be tough. So even though he's returning in record time, it not, might not be quick enough. Switching over to the college game, the playoff rankings came out last night with Florida State back at number four. What's been the reaction to this? There's some surprise, but it's been, it's been tempered. You know, some thought Oregon or Ohio, or Ohio State would be there at four. 
who each have a loss, but this isn't the final poll either. That'll be next week. Now, if Florida State can beat Louisville this Saturday for the ACC title without their star quarterback, maybe the committee will vote them in. I mean, they are undefeated. They play in a power conference, and the committee has never denied a team with those credentials before. Now, I will grant this could be a bit of a special situation with their best player injured. But I'll also mention in 2014, Texas Christian had one loss heading into the final poll, final poll. They were ranked fourth. They went out and beat Iowa State by like 50 points, and somehow the committee dropped them to sixth. So it can be subject to change. Now, next year, this event is going to turn into a 12-team playoff instead of just four. Some have argued that's going to dilute the regular season a bit. Do you agree with that? No. I mean, I've heard that argument. This is 12 out of like 120 teams. I mean, look at the NFL. It's a 14-team playoff, and there's only 32 teams in the league. It is the most watched game in America. You know, pretty much every other level of football, whether it's high school, other levels of college or pros, they have automatic qualifications, a real playoff system. Uh, so you, and I also think there's a fairness issue here. You really need a clear path for every team to be able to qualify. Next year, we'll finally have it. Uh, for right now, I think it's assumed if you're undefeated and you're from a power conference, you're going to make it. But what if there's more than four undefeated teams, you know? Uh, so, and we were very close to that this year. So I think it's a needed improvement. Now, switching gears to the NBA, the quarterfinals for the league's in-season tournament were set last night, though it did create a stir as some teams had a run-up, a score to advance. How does this differ from the regular season? Well, of course, there are blowouts in the regular season games as well, but usually as a sportsmanship gesture, you know, the teams will take their, their starters out, but they'll also do it to rest their, to rest their starters, depending, and it'll, it'll depend on how the big the, league, it, the lead is, of course. Now, that was not the case in a couple games last night because uh, in case of a tie in these group standings in this in-season tournament, point differential is used as one of the tiebreakers. So what happened in a few games was that when the other in the blowouts, uh, one coach, the losing team, took their starters out. The winning team kept theirs in, kept playing hard. Now, judging from player comments, it sounded like it was a little bit uncomfortable. But that's a very common tiebreaker, and I, I do not think that this is something you want decided by a coin toss. Uh, but that's just my, my opinion anyway. Well, Dave, as always, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Tiff. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.